Okay, well, uh, this morning uh, during our, our uh, Bible study hour, I want to dip into something that might seem a little difficult initially to, uh, to sort of grasp, but I don't think it is all that hard to grasp. Uh, I want to talk about the metaphysics of Reformed worship. There's a fancy title for you. And the theme verse, uh, verses for my talk this morning are, are found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 at the very end, beginning at verse 16, where the Apostle Paul has been talking about treasure in jars of clay. I don't know if you remember that passage. Then he says, we do not, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For, what, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's uh, something that modern Christians have lost sight of, but Christians for time out of mind were very much in touch with. And that's what I want to reflect on you uh, a little bit with you. So I want to talk first of all about a term. The term is metaphysics. And I understand why that might be off-putting. You might have had a course in philosophy, introduction philosophy, and that term was introduced to you at that point. And you might have thought, man, I hated that class and hate anything associated with it. (laughs) But um, the the other reason is that um, the term could puzzle you because it's been appropriated by the New Age movement. If you've gone into like a... You know, like a bookstore that has New Age books will have the metaphysics section or the metaphysical section, you know, where they talk about crystals and, you know, all kinds of goofy stuff. And that's actually a, uh, a, a, a sort of a, what, what we're witnessing is the taking of a term and ripping it out of its original use or context and reappropriating it for other purposes. But every aesthetic, and remember last week I talked about reformed aesthetics, is informed by a metaphysic. That's the thing to keep in mind. Underneath every artistic work, there is a, there's a kind of a, a set of beliefs about the nature of reality. And that's what informs the art. So the term was actually coined by Aristotle. So, it, you know, old frumpy Aristotle. <laughs> you can't get much older than that. And what, what it he was doing is that, you know, when he was writing on various subjects, he wrote on physics, which is what we kind of normally think of, uh, you know, what he was addressing was what we normally think of when we think about physics, the physical world and its character and so forth. And then he said, there's something else that we can't see and measure in the same way, but still shapes the physical world. That is the metaphysics, just simply means after the physics. In other words, the term is like, in a compendium of you know, books or addresses, it's just like, okay, we've talked about physics, now we're going we're to talk about something that you can't see that is what's at work uh, in the physical realm underneath it. So that's what uh, we're dealing with when we talk about metaphysics. And when, we, when we're thinking about the different divisions of, of knowledge, what we know... Uh, you can kind of break it down. You can talk about, say, um, metaphysics, which is one of those things. Ethics is another. Um, you can talk about uh, epistemology. And all those different things are, are addressing the subject. What do we know? And, what do we, and so epistemology, for example, is the study of how we know what we know. So that's pretty important. Uh, then when we talk about ethics, you know, what we're talking about is what cons- uh, constitutes the good life. And good's understood in two senses, you know, the sense that morally good, but also just in terms of good in the, se- in the sense that life itself is good. And there's, a, there's a, a way to live that's going to be conducive to enjoying the goods of life. So the good life. Like, like when you see, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous, and now we're going to look at the arts of the good life. That's a particular understanding of the good life. And that particular understanding of the good life is the more stuff you have, the better life is, or the higher quality. But that's not the only way of understanding the good life. That's a particular way of thinking about the good life. 
And it actually kind of comes down to metaphysics, and metaphysics is addressing the question, what is real? What is really real? Now, that means that you can have a range of opinions. Materialists believe there's only one thing that's real. What is that? Matter. Matter. Matter is all that matters. That's the metaphysic. Now, they hate the term metaphysics because metaphysics implies that there's another part to reality that is not material. But even materialists have a metaphysic. It's a, it's a sort of flat, unitary kind of metaphysic. Now, there's a, if we think about, say, Eastern philosophy, there's a different metaphysic. And that metaphysic is the spiritual is real and the material world is an illusion. Probably, if you've ever done any work, you know, in Buddhism or uh, Hindu thought, you've run into this notion that, you know, we live in the world of appearances. It's all passing away. Things come and go, and what we need to do is be, a direct, you know, sort of oriented toward the, the things that are permanent. Those are unseen things, and that's actually what Paul is getting at here. But he's not a Hindu. <laughs> this is the way Christians have talked for from the start, and it's the way Jews thought as well, particularly in the first century. And uh, so um, that's what we're, what we're talking about here is what's real. And now what we, when we look at this passage, what we see is that Paul is saying that there's a kind of uh, reality that we can perceive, but we don't see it with the eye per se. There's an unseen reality, and that reality doesn't change. So there are things that change, things that don't change. And uh, so going back to this, verse 18, so chapter 4, verse 18, first, or 2 Corinthians. As we, not, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is almost the inverse of how we normally think about things in our society. We think of ideas as sort of being unsubstantial, wispy things. What you, what you want is, you know, when you want to talk about real things, you want to talk about the physical world. That's what's really real. That's a very uh, contemporary way of looking at things. In fact, you can even see this earlier when in verse 16 and 17, Paul says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. The outer self, what is the outer self? Your body. Every day I wake up and say, I'm wasting away. <laughs> day by day, I'm wasting away. I look at older pictures of myself. What happened? Where did that guy go? <laughs> wasting away. But the inner self is being renewed day by day. That's the part of yourself that can't be seen with the eye, right? That's the part of the self that's being renewed day by day. And then he makes a, contra a contrast here for this light momentary affliction. Now, you might not think that it's light you might not even sort of feel like it's momentary. You might think it's never going to go away. <laughs> but uh, in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, now that's an interesting uh, way of putting it because in Hebrew, the word um, that we translate into the English word glory does mean heavy, kabod or kabod. So kabod uh, literally meant something that was heavy. So glory is heavy, eternal weight of glory. So he's actually kind of reinforcing this notion, the eternal weight of glory. Um, kind of a double positive, I guess. Um, anyway, um, now the irony of the modern evangelical and reformed, uh, I think, and I think this is a more recent development, maybe within the last 100 years, maybe, maybe 150 years, rejection of metaphysics, uh, means that we've more or less adopted a, a materialist approach to our understanding of the Christian faith. That we don't think about reality in this way anymore. We think of it as just sort of flat and unitary. And what this has done is it's, it's, it's caused us to lose sight of how the sacraments, for example, tap into spiritual realities or, or our means of grace through which spiritual unseen things are really communicated to us, really. not just symbols. Symbols are things that exist in your head, and that's where it stops. This is a modern way of thinking, uh, and we can you know, point to someone like, say, Swingley and say he was a proponent of it, but, uh, 
uh, it's something that's more recent. People in the past didn't think in these terms. They talked about the sacraments as mysteries. And the word mystery has, again, been, uh, it's been drained of its original uh, sense. When you hear the word mystery today, by the way, the word we translate into sacraments in the New Testament is mysterion, literally mystery. That's the original Greek word. Now, when we hear the word mystery, what do we, what do we think about? Sherlock Holmes, right? It's a mystery, Watson. And what does that mean? Well, it means if we had the right data, remember, Sherlock was all about the data. If we have the right data, we could, we could concoct a theory, and then we could prove whether or not maybe our theory is true by, the, by more data, uh, some evidence, and then maybe we can arrive at a, at a conclusion. Mystery solved. Mystery is solved. Mystery solved. It's just a puzzle. It's not what mystery meant in the, in the first century. Mystery in the first century was a hidden reality, something that could not be. So Christ, when people saw him, there were some people who got it and some people who didn't. There were some who only saw the surface, but those to whom the Father had revealed the truth were you know, able to see what was there beneath the surface. It was there all along. You know, we see this introduced in, in John chapter 1. The glory of God, right, comes to dwell among us, tabernacling in the flesh. Some people see the term apocalypse means unveiling. Some people, there's a, some people have an apocalypse. When, you know, Jesus asks the question rhetorically, you know, who do men say that I am? Some say this, some say that. And then Peter says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What does Christ say to him? Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is something that you know because it's been, you know, you, you've gotten this insight uh, from God. So that means uh, there's a connection in the sacraments between the visible and the invisible. And this, by the way, is something that the Reformed maintain, the spiritual presence. We believe that there's a spiritual presence. There's also a sense in which we also believe that we, we are translated into the heavenly realms in worship that there's actually something going on. I'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, uh, the modern approach with flattening things has turned art from a means of communicating the sort of transcendent world to the world that we see today or helping us to see transcendent realities in the world that we live in today to just a theater for the ego. So when you look at older forms of art, like if you go to the art museum, um, there was a sense in which what, what, say, visual artists were attempting to do in, cl in the classical world or in the Baroque era, whatever, is trying to give you some sense of the transcendent or the transcendentals, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Modern arts rejected that entirely. So if you ever wonder why modern art's so ugly, it's because artists are ugly. That's just it. What they're putting on display is their inner chaos, and they're celebrating it. So like when you go around, you know, or their superficiality. I mean, if you, if you, you know, see a lot of pop art, you know, remember Andy Warhol and all that, you know, if you, or you see Jackson Pollock or any of these, you know, Picasso. You know, Picasso was classically trained. He could actually make a regular looking person. <laughs> that by the end of his life, what was he saying? He was saying, essentially, because uh, the modern world has lost touch, with transcendent verities, truths, we are now fractured. We are now, uh, it's all a matter of perspective. You know, that's why he would mix up sort of like he would show uh, a portrait of a person, then he would give like a profile and then a, a straight on in the same sort of composite image. He was trying to say it all just as perspective. There's no actual point of reference that is eternal in character that we can look to to make sense of the world. So, that's what's going on in modern art. Modern art is the celebration of the loss of the transcendent. Now it makes sense, right? <laughs> now you can understand what they're really up to. So anyway, and unfortunately, within a lot of the evangelical world, we've bought into the same sort of thing. But instead, what we've done is we've sunken into the subjective, and we've celebrated the emotive. So what's the objective of praise worship? It's to stir up your emotional life. 
It's not to get you in touch with eternal realities. It's just to kind of work you up into some kind of emotional basket case, <laughs> you know, soppy, you know, sort of sentimental person. Uh, and so it's a, it's a celebration of the subjective. It's a celebration of the inner life at the expense of the transcendent or the outer, outer self. And so you, you hear all sorts, sorts of talk about, you know, um, the, how, how the forms are empty. Really? Forms are empty? Or are you empty? Or can't you see the connections? It's not that the forms are empty. It's you just have no ability to see the connections anymore. And that's because you live in a world where you're not encouraged to. You're not instructed into how to do it. So uh, this is not the Reformed tradition. Now, some people will try to present it to you as such, but that's not the Reformed outlook. Um, The Reformed outlook is uh, very different. So... uh, because we've lost touch with the transcendent, we've lost touch with intrinsic meaning. So our bodies, for example, are intrinsically meaningful. Uh, they're not just machines made of meat, right? Or just tombs of flesh that our, our spirits are captured in. In some sense, they're made to be the temple of the Holy Spirit, but also some place for us to live in. Um, so here's an interesting thing. Uh, if you go on reading here in 2 Corinthians into chapter 5, you'll see Paul say, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, your earthly home is your body. Right? Uh, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. So this is a marvelous mixing of metaphors. You've got the house and the clothes all kind of wrapped up with each other. So apparently Paul didn't go to junior high where I did, where I was told mixing metaphors was, a bad, was bad form. <laughs> but he's mixing the metaphors here. And while you're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. In other words, he's longing for the glorification of the body, for the new eternal dwelling. Um, so uh, that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He has prepared us for this very thing. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given his spirit as a guarantee. So the spirit is, a, is something that is uh, like a down payment. Like I say, this is earnest money. This is to tell you that something more is coming. Anyway, we don't think in these terms anymore. And that's because we've lost our sense of degrees of realness. So here's a, here's a crazy thought. Like when we think of real, we think about either it's real or not real. Well, in the past, they would talk about real and not real, but they would also talk about degrees of real. Some things are more real than other things. This very passage, Paul, Paul's not saying your body is, isn't real, but he's saying there's something more real. And what's the criterion by which we determine what's more real? Transience versus eternal. Things that are eternal are more real than things that are not. Things that pass away are less real than things that don't pass away. Now, philosophers and theologians talked about this all the time, and um, and here's how the argument worked. Things that uh, depend on other things to exist are not as real as the things that they depend on. Pretty straightforward. God. Is God more real than us? Yeah. (laughs) God is ultimately real. God is self-existent. You and I are not. We're dependent. Uh, You remove God, you remove us. I know this is just a, a thought experiment, but that's how it works. If God were to wink out, so would we. Moment by moment, in an ongoing way, you and I are created from nothing. It's one of the fascinating things that we see with particle physics. You look at the smallest sort of levels of reality, you discover that matter isn't as real as we thought. You get really small, it gets really weird. (laughs) In fact, that's one of the reasons why a lot of physicists are becoming much more kind of open to ancient spiritual insights 
is they're discovering at the smallest levels that what you think is real, what we think is real, is not so real. You've heard about spooky movement at a distance, uh, familiar with quark, quarks, and you know, basically the idea is that you know you have this kind of reality where it doesn't matter how far certain particles are apart, if one moves, the other mirrors it. No connection. They can't figure out how it works. That's how quantum theory. And we're actually basing, make, building computers based with this. It's not, it's not fantasy. The quantum mechanics are now being used to, to build supercomputers that are far faster uh, than anything we have now. Faster than light. Yeah. That's what I, I, Paul was getting at when he was quoting the Greek philosophers. You were, probably already got this by saying, in men, we, we live and move and have a being. Yeah, right? I mean, they even got it. And, yeah. You know, you know, that ancient thought, which maybe came from Aristotle. Well, what, what, what we, one of the things you learn when you actually read people who've been dead for a long time is they were a lot smarter than we've been told. So like, if you believe all the nonsense that you're told in school about the idiots who lived in the past, you're an idiot. Just read them for yourself. They're a lot smarter than, than you know, you've been told. Just a little example. No one believed that the world was flat. There's all kinds of stuff that we, we have from the past that demonstrate they understood. In fact, they had a pretty good si sense of how big the world was. All sorts of uh, empirical evidence. Ships going over the horizon, the crescent of the moon, you know, the shadow of the earth. There was all sorts of stuff that they had. They said, the earth is round. The thing I couldn't figure out is how gravity worked. You know, the antipodes. There was this idea, how do, how do they stay up on the other side of the planet? <laughs> that kind of, so they just didn't know how the things, certain things worked, but they had a sense of how things were. Um, anyway, I, I'm belaboring the point. But, um, so uh, things that are temporal, in some sense, depend on things that are eternal to exist. We're not entirely sure how that works, but things that last are eternal. So those are the two things, dependency and lastingness. The more real something is, uh, the, the, the less it depends on other things and the more uh, it lasts. So that's the me those are the measures. And when you can identify the, the thing that everything else depends upon, you've arrived at something substantial. In the, in the world of philosophy, it's substance. It's what substance means, something that everything else depends on. Um, now, materialists, as I noted, uh, believe that matter is ultimately real and our minds are epiphenomena. In other words, they'll pass away when our bodies pass away. That's the way they think. But materialism has a problem, a pretty big one, and it doesn't know how to solve it, and it's heat death. Heat death implies a beginning. So term, maybe the term you're more familiar with is entropy. So everything seems to be winding down. Entropic processes, heat death. So all you need to do is rewind the tape. <laughs> Beginning. What did it? So that creates the problem of, you know, it was simple when, like, you know, Einstein. Einstein didn't believe uh, in certain developments in modern physics. This is hard for, to believe because we think of Einstein as sort of like being the crazy on the edge guys. But he was actually kind of appalled at certain developments with quantum theory and stuff like that. And uh, so he rejected it until he was forced to accept it by the evidence. What did he, what did he really want to believe? He wanted to believe that the universe that we live in is eternal. That's what he wanted. He wanted to believe that matter is eternal. But the evidence seems to indicate that it's not. Matter is not eternal. So something else has to be eternal. And this is why a lot of physicists are much more open to Christian theology than they used to be. Really. really in all sorts of places. Um, so, again, your high school... You know, science teacher who's kind of, you know, imbibed materialist notions that were like popular in the 19th century is actually not all that smart. So theism argues that something else is real, and that's God. So see, seen things were made by God, but so were unseen things. That's another thing to keep in mind, seen and unseen. What do we, what do we confess every week in the creed? 
that God is the maker of both the seen and the unseen. So that means that uh, for Christians, that we believe in unseen things. Now, when it comes to Reformed metaphysics, uh, obviously everything you know, that we believe is based upon the truth that God is ultimately real. God is ultimately real. It doesn't begin with us. That's why our worship doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with our feelings. It doesn't begin with what we think is relevant or any of that kind of stuff. So, like, think, think about it this way. If I knew that there was, uh, you know, a... Uh, semi-tractor trailer that was coming down our driveway and heading right to this building uh, and it was about to smash into the building and I, ca I came in and I yelled at all of you, you know, hey, get out of the building. The building's about to be hit by a semi-tractor, you know, a, a trailer. Uh, and you said to me, hey, that's not relevant. <laughs> I'm not feeling it. <laughs> uh, well, you would, by, by kind of Stay, sort of looking at things that way, miss a really important reality, and that is you're about to die because you're going to be crushed by this, this truck. This is the, the, the way that a lot of people, though, and in the evangelical world think. They really do believe that the authorities, when it comes to what is relevant, are the opinions of the people in the room. So we need to make certain that we appeal to those people and what they think is important. But what you think is important may actually be pretty stupid. If you can't accept that, then you don't, you're not humble enough. This is why humility is a prerequisite for learning. If, you, if you're so arrogant that you can't recognize there are some things that you just don't know, then you'll never learn. So, you know, people who are dismissive uh, when it comes to the things they don't know uh, tend to be stupid their entire lives. So uh, when it comes to this reality, there are things that we can see and things we can't see. There are things that we can observe using our senses. Remember the five senses. We can apprehend those things. But the five senses are worthless when it comes to unseen things. Unless there's a way for physical things to represent or be the means by which those unseen things are apprehended. And this is where art comes in. This is why art uh, is always based on a metaphysic. So, now, one of the challenges that we have when it, when it comes to biblical faith is we can't represent God this way, but we can represent other unseen things this way. For example, grace. Grace is a, rea is a reality that's unseen. Um, but we can represent that. In other words, present it to uh, people in ways that are not idolatrous. So this is there's something to think about. Uh, were there images in the tabernacle or in the temple? Yes, lots of images. Images of unseen things. Cherubim. They're right on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, remember, you know, the Ark in which the tablets of the law, Aaron's staff, manna are all kept that's the throne and on the throne we have the, the, the presence of God unseen bowing toward the presence are the cherubim framing the open space where there's no physical representation with a physical representation <laughs> we have pomegranates we got you know, almonds, we got all kinds of things uh, in there, uh, in, you know, in the uh, holy place. We don't have an image of God, though, but we have lots of other images, and that's important to, keep, to remember. So it's not as though the Reformed are against images per se. If we were, we'd be against a lot of the Bible. But we can't, we can't be against images per se. So visual... Uh, Visual, the visual arts can represent unseen things. Uh, and, uh, you know, when I think about, about other, thing, other, other things that are unseen but are real authority, uh, the physical, you know, the arts can represent authority, they can represent glory, they can represent power, they can represent grace, they can represent majesty. And what I mean by represent, 
take the word represent. What does it mean? Represent means to present to you something that uh, is uh, someplace else. And how we understand how that representation occurs uh, is important. Within the Christian faith, we believe that the word of God is God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So it's a completely accurate representation because it is what it's pointing to. You and I can't do that in the same way. My words are very separable from me. <laughs> this is, I've talked about this many times. This is why human beings can lie and why God can't. God literally can't lie um, because whatever God says becomes so. So reform metaphysics and aesthetics are realist. So the term in, in the world of theology and in philosophy is realism. Realism is the conviction that unseen things are real. In fact, more real than the things we see. That's the conviction, that there is some sense in which... So, like, for example, if I were to look at any one of you and I'd say, there's the image of God, there's the image of God, there's the image of God, right? Now, the image of God is the thing that's more real than any of, say, particular expressions. But each of the particular expressions take us back to what is real. Now, there's a different way of thinking about this, and it's known as nominalism. Nominalism is the conviction that there are no realities that exist outside our heads. All we have are names. And it gets really weird really fast. You know, the classic example of nominalism, and by the way, this is a product of the Muslim world that was brought into the Christian world in the 13th and 14th centuries as a result of some interactions in Spain between Muslim philosophers and Christian and Jewish philosophers. But there, so like when we think about, here's, here, there's, a, there's a really good book out there called The Closing of the Muslim Mind. And what happened is that, you know, we have all the uh, you know, folks who are from, the, from that part of the world who talk about the golden age of Islam. Well, the golden age of Islam uh, is early Islam. And there was a point at which there was an internal debate in Islam between two sets of philosophers, and the good guys lost. And that's why we have fundamentalist, violent Islam today. That's the winning party. And they uh, influenced certain Christian and Jewish philosophers in Spain. You remember Spain was sort of like territory that... Great film. I don't know if you can find it anywhere. El Cid with Charlton Heston about uh, the expulsion of the, of, the, of the Muslims from Spain and the, the battle that eventually led to that. But anyway, uh, that was sort of like, that was the turf for hundreds of years where these different philosophers from the three great monotheistic religions would debate. And some of the, some of the influence that we can see with nominalism is from that. But the idea is that it's just in your head. There is no... Uh, there are no unseen realities uh, apart from God. Now, when we think about how this influences reformed worship, there are two vectors that we need to keep in mind. Time and eternity and heaven and earth. Time and eternity and heaven and earth. So um, when we are thinking about time and eternity, this is what we're getting at. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. So there's eternal realities, and then there are temporal realities, and there's a relationship between the two. Uh, so we live in a world that's created, and uh, time is part of that. So time isn't eternal. I don't know if you've ever really spent any time <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> but if you got rid of t uh, space you'd get rid of time. So time is a created... I mean, Arist and not Aristotle, Augustine saw this uh, really early on. If you read City of God, you know, he reflects upon this. He was ahead of Einstein, in other words. He knew that time is relative to creation. In other words, God is not in time. God stands outside of time because time is part of the created order. It's really weird, but guess what? We've proved it. 
you know, so we've sent an atomic clock into outer space at great speed, and then we had a, a clock here on the Earth, and we discovered a growing discrepancy between the clocks. Pretty slight. <laughs> Not, but this is why we had an atomic clock, right? Uh, but there, there really is uh, uh, a sense in which time is kind of elastic, um, and speed and all these different things come into play with that. Um, anyway, I'm starting to get into to kind of the, the realms of science that I am very much a dilettante. <laughs> you know, but I think, though, that the, the, the thing that we, that we see is that time is a created thing. Consequently, God, God is outside of time. And therefore, uh, what, what we... Uh, the person who, to whom we are addressing ourselves through Christian worship transcends time. Now, the incarnation, the second and third persons of the Trinity are involved in time. This is something that Irenaeus talked about quite a bit. He talk, spoke of the Spirit and the Son as like the two hands in which God reaches into time and interacts with us. So, uh, there's a sense in which the Father always is... Uh, outside of the circle of time transcends and then the Son and the Spirit are, the, are the, the means, the persons of the Trinity that interact with us. Um, and then heaven and earth. And this is, I think, something that uh, is worth spending a lot of time on because uh, uh, when we think of heaven and earth, we're thinking more in terms of spatial relations than we are uh, time and eternity, the relationship between those two things. So when you hear the word heaven, what do you think about? You think about up, right? Heaven is up. But is it? Really? Is heaven really up? So that would, if it was literally up, then we'd be able to go out in a spaceship and maybe reach it. Right? In fact, there were some cosmonauts who famously made fun of the Christian you know, doctrine of heaven, saying, we're up here, we're not seeing anything. <laughs> you know, and the joke was really on them, you know, because they really didn't understand what is being referred to with regard, when we speak of heaven. Now, heaven is always up in a particular sense. It's an analog for authority, for oversight, uh, for truth, goodness, and beauty, and how truth, goodness, and beauty order the world. In other words, these are realities that are not uh, spatially uh, or t- temporally bound. But it's not literally out there in space. It's not like it's in you know, another galaxy or anything like that. Um, but it's not just in our heads either. See, that's the way modern people think. If it's not literally locatable on a map, then it must be just in our heads. But what transcendence uh, reveals to us or demonstrates to us is that something can be real, even more real, than the physical world that we inhabit, uh, and we can be in touch with it. And one of the things that worship does, and has always done, is get us in touch with these eternal realities. Eternity, heaven. Eternity and heaven. So, uh, the two ways we can think about it are liturgy, which uh, I'll get into in a minute, and architecture. And we see both of these addressed in Scripture as in a way that helps us understand how it's possible for us to interact with the, with tran- the transcendent realities that we all depend on and the one to, uh, upon whom we depend. So let's think about liturgy for a few moments. Um, there's a, a, a passage in James um, that's often used by preachers when they're calling for repentance. Um, and it's, uh, you know, chapter 4, I think it's verse 8, where James uh, is talking about drawing near to God. Um, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Exalt your, uh, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now let's think about the language that's being used here. Drawing near. What does that mean? Is it like a physical object to which we are drawing, our, drawing near? Or a spiritual reality that we are drawing closer to? 
And then we think about humbling, which means going low, and exaltation, which means going up. So in a literal sense, going low and going up. But is that literally what we're talking about? Or are we talking about some kind of spiritual reality that is reflected in the physical acts of you know, being humbled and being exalted? This is what we're getting at here. The unseen is what is being reflected uh, in the scene. So liturgy literally means the work of the people. I don't know if you're familiar with the term, but laos, then uh, ergo, or er, er, is er, but it, it literally means uh, laos would be people, and then ergo would be work, so work of the people. Um, and liturgy is what orders our approach to God. That's the thing to keep in mind. So uh, God is ultimately real, so real that he's uh, potent enough to kill you, proximity-wise. What do we see in Scripture? We see in many different places. Um, when the presence of God is uh, uh, referred to, we're also told to take special precautions, <laughs> right? Don't get too close to the mountain. Anyone who touches the mountain will die. Don't touch the ark, even if it's like tipping and about to fall. Why? You will die, and we see that. Um, Moses says, let me see your face, and what's God say? It'll kill you. <laughs> I'll let you see me, but I'm going to be like around the block. You know, I'm going to already pass by, cover you so you can't see, but then you'll get to see just the fading. And then Moses is so transformed, his face is radiant, and people can't bear even secondhand holiness. Like, he has to cover his face because people just can't take it. God is like radioactive. And I use that fully aware of the two f- sort of things that we can observe about radioactivity. One is it can light a city or it can burn it to the ground. Right? It's that potent. So God is like that, so which means that our approach has to be correct. Otherwise, it's presumptuous and dangerous. So this is, this is one of the reasons why, you know, God is a warm, fuzzy, you know, you know, these people have, you know, you know a near-death experience is like completely bogus if a person talks about the warm embrace of light, you know, that kind of stuff. Like, no. <laughs> no, 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 you, did, you, you didn't, I don't know what you were doing or what happened to you, but you didn't see God. Because what we have is scenes like uh, Isaiah sees, you know, uh, the theophany, God, and uh, he's, you know, just undone. He's a, I'm, I'm dead. Every time, I mean, even with angels, like, you know, we're going to die. You know, we've seen an angel, that kind of thing. So, um, and this is, the, this is the paradox. We are dependent upon the one uh, who, uh, because of our impurity and sinfulness, uh, is a threat. And you see this in the Garden of Eden, right? You know, so the Lord uh, is there... Uh, looking for, you know, Adam and Eve, and they're hiding. Uh, So we're dependent upon the one uh, that we can't bear to be in the presence of because we're sinful. Um, What needs to happen is God needs to draw us to himself, and God needs to make it possible for us to approach him. And uh, liturgy follows the correct approach. That's the thing. So there's a particular order that we uh, follow in our approach. You can put, think about it this way. We put on Christ. Christ is that suit that we're, we put on that makes it possible for us to stand in the presence of God. It's like that you know, radioactive uh, you know, suit that makes it possible for it to occur. Um, so we come to... We approach God in the name of Christ. That's not just like window dressing. It's not less like saying the polite thing to do. It's not just like good etiquette. That's like if we don't come to you in Christ's name, we're done. So our approach is in Christ's name. We put on Christ and we confess both God's holiness and our sinfulness so that we get honest with ourselves. And we get, so confession works in both ways. 
when we hear the word confession of faith, we're saying this is, these are things that are true about God. When we confess our sins, we're saying these are things that are true about me or about us. And then um, what we do is uh, in the process of drawing near as we, you know, as we live in Christ, we grow up into him who is our head. That marvelous language from Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 15, grow up into him who is our head. So it's not as though we just stay where we're at. There's, a, there's something that's going on in the course of our worship where we're actually kind of filling out the suit, you could say. You remember when you were a kid and your mom bought you clothes that were like three sizes too big for you, and you say you grow into them, and you're like walking around with your sleeves dragging behind you, and you're like, you know, and like your entire childhood is like an ill-fitting clothes because she's buying you new clothes that are like, you know, meant for you to be wearing two years down the road, and by the time you're, that two years come around, they're all beat up and chewed up, and your sleeves are all mangled. And anyway, mom, I understand what you're up to, <laughs> but that's that's sort of what happens is that we grow up into Christ, the one who is our head. So through God's grace, we actually become more and more holy, more and more like Christ. And this is accomplished through the ordinary means of grace. Now, the term ordinary in our language is like unspectacular, you know, every day. You know, what we want is, you know, some spectacular means of grace. We need a revival to sweep over the land, you know, and get everybody like, you know, with flames on their heads and running through the streets. And that's, we want some extraordinary means of grace. But... The ordinary means of grace are really not ordinary. They're really quite uh, marvelous. And so uh, this is, these are the reasons why Reformed liturgy doesn't focus on stirring up our emotions. Those will follow if you see things the right way. Those will, you, always follow, you always start with what's real. And if people get the point, they'll feel what they need to feel. We don't try to make God relevant. We try to make ourselves relevant. Completely turn it on its head. You're irrelevant. Irrelevant to God if you're a sinner. So uh, we approach God because he is our source and our end or our purpose. Now, the last thing I want to focus on is architecture. And uh, what I want to do is think a little bit. Um, I'm mean, drawing a lot from the temple and the tabernacle. This is a marvelous book, The, the Temple and the Church's Mission, a biblical theology of the dwelling place of God by G.K. Beale. And uh, so a number of the things uh, that I'm sharing with you, he goes into much you know, more depth. So if any of the things that I talk about are of interest to you, you should probably look at this. But um, there, there's a great deal to think about when we see in Scripture, when we look at Scriptures. So have you ever been puzzled by that term uh, we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Has that ever puzzled you? It has puzzled me. I was like, no, I'm seated here in this building, this uh, square dance hall, <laughs> here in the middle of Vancouver, Washington. This is where I am. What do you mean, seated with Christ in heavenly places? Well, seated with Christ in heavenly places is getting at the fact that uh, we're talking about a spiritual reality here that's more real than this building. That's the thing. Really need to let it sink in. It's more real, not less real. There's this marvelous um, way that C.S. Lewis puts it in The Great Divorce. Anybody read The Great Divorce? Marvelous book. But it's about, it's, 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 so it's a thought experiment. So he's not saying this is literally how things work. It's just sort of like, let's just imagine if kind of thing. But he's, it starts off with C.S. Lewis in hell. So he's dead. And hell is London on a rainy day. <laughs> and he's just like walking around, miserable. And he sees this bus, this marvelous bus from heaven that was, it's taking people on a holiday to heaven. You know, you can go to you know, heaven and visit. So he gets on the bus and he goes there. And as soon as he gets off the bus, him and all the other ghosts, and they're all very wispy, unsubstantial, they find that heaven is too real for them. The, gla- the grass won't bend under their feet. It's like razor blades that cut through the soles of their shoes and pierce their, 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 their feet. And they're like, oh, oh, oh. You know, the, the whole experience of heaven, in other words, is miserable because they're not real and heaven is too real, at least too real for them. And what Lewis is actually trying to, to bring out is what we're talking about here. Heaven is more real. Things that are seen are transient. They come and they go. 
they're not false in the sense that maybe the Eastern religions say they're false. They're real, but they're real because they depend upon God to exist on an ongoing moment-by-moment basis. So if that's the case, we can actually be seated in Christ right now because we're believers. Now, some folks have referred to architecture as frozen music. Have you ever heard that term? Architecture is frozen music. What's this building? I don't know, something off key, maybe a Jew's harp. <laughs> bing, bing. <laughs> no, it's, it's a great place to meet. I'm not, I'm not ungrateful for it. But at the same time, I don't think anybody would have confused this place with the heavenly realm. <laughs> right? Well, that was actually what they were up to in the tabernacle. They did want you to think you were in the heavenly realm. Everything about the tabernacle was intended, and the temple was intended to trans- give you a sense that you were in the heavenlies. The color schemes, the way the lights worked, the different sections of the temple, or the different sections of the tabernacle, everything was intended to give you that sense because it was the axis mundi, the center of the world. They literally believed that it was the center of the world. It's where heaven and earth met. So even though, you know, Jerusalem is up. It wasn't all that much up, but no matter where you were coming from, you could be coming from someplace that had a higher elevation, but you went up to the temple. You went up to Jerusalem because this was the apex, the axis mundi. Um, So the heavenly court uh, is present in miniature, and we see this in Scripture. If you go to Hebrews and you go to chapter uh, eight chapters eight and nine. This is exactly the way uh, Paul puts it here. So if you look in chapter eight, uh, verses one through five. So here we're told. Now the point in what we are saying is this: We have such a high priest, one who is seated uh, at the right hand of the throne of Majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So in other words, the tabernacle and the priest were copies and shadows of heavenly things. And then we see again in uh, chapter 9, verse 23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So Christ is the high priest in the true high court. Here's another thing to keep in mind. When we think about, say, temples, and we think about... um, sacrifices and so forth, we tend to think about those things in a kind of modern way where we separate church and state. But that wasn't the case. You are in a court in the temple because it's the dwelling place of of God, but it's a court in the same sense that a king's court. And so the courtiers are the priests. They serve the high king in the court. Bringing, you know, and then we bring our tribute, our sacrifices, our offerings of thanks before the king. We ask for his uh, grace. We seek his grace, his mercy, particularly if we are in the wrong. This is why it was called the mercy seat, by the way. And so what you have in the tabernacle is a miniature, sort of a, a field office that's designed to resemble the main office. That's one way to kind of think about it in modern terms. So when the priests were serving, they, in the tabernacle and in the temple, they really thought they were in heavenly places. This was, this was the place where heaven and earth met, and what they were doing uh, made a difference in the heavenly realm, and the, and the, and the decrees of heaven were being made uh, you know, in their thinking in response to the things that were going on. Now, um, I've already noted that we have a modern materialist bias, and this is one reason we don't see these things. Um, 
also when we think about the tabernacle, we get kind of caught up in the, in the forms, sort of the liturgical forms, the sacrificial system and all that. And because it's been abrogated, we don't think about uh, the fact that what was established was supposed to be, in a, in a, supposed to be a, a representation. So when you see Moses given his instructions for, the, for this building of the tabernacle, he's told, do it exactly the way you see it. This is what's supposed to be the case. So another reason, and this is a very valuable reason, but we, we again, uh, when we think about the temple, um, we remember Jesus' words to the woman at the well about, um, you know, worshiping God in spirit and in truth. And that's uh, very important. Uh, we see that in John chapter 4. But I want to finish with this thought. Yes, the church is the temple. The church is uh, God's dwelling. Um, we, in, in a real sense, are in touch with heaven uh, because God is in touch with us. And there is a sense in which we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, and that's real. It's not just poetry, you know, in the sort of the modern sense of just trying to create an image in your head that will maybe be helpful to you. But it's actually intended to convey a, a reality and a truth to you and me. We are seated in heavenly places. But uh, let's say, um, just for the sake of argument, that we don't have to meet in a square dance hall forever. Let's say we could actually build something. What should we build? I'm not uh, proposing that we build a, you know, exact replica of the tabernacle in the wilderness, so you know. <laughs> but I do think that there are certain things that we can say carry over if we understand the Ark of the Covenant to be the throne of God, it's what? Central? It's elevated, right? Uh, that's something to keep in mind. If we're thinking about the furnishings and we think about those as means of grace, uh, you know, word and sacrament, they ought to be weighty, significant, beautiful, lasting, valuable. Those uh, should be considerations. Uh, when, we, when we think about, and then we think about how, how should they be arranged? What goes where? This, by the way, is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, we have some disagreements with some of the, the you know, Christians that maybe uh, put the altar central. So, you know, you maybe have gone to a church where you see the table, you know, high and lifted up and central, and maybe you've got flanking it, you know, a lectern and a pulpit on either side. So there's a theology that is reflected in that, and that's something to think about. So um, here's, here's, my, here's my argument in a nutshell. The pulpit should be central. It should be high and lifted up. Why? It's the throne of the word. The table should be beneath it. It should also be central, but it should be beneath it because uh, what we're saying by means of the relationship between the throne and the table is that it, the uh, descent of Christ, the incarnation, where he has uh, come from the heavenly realm to be with us and feed us. We're invited to the table, but there's a proper relationship between the two. By the way, I think that if... Uh, the stuff I've read concerning the way early churches were um, ordered, that's the way it was viewed. So placing the, the table central and high is a more, it's a, it's a later development. And the reason is, is central and it's high is because it's the throne. And so the pulpit is not merely a lectern. It's not simply a place where the pastor stands. There's, there should be something about it that communicates to us that we are all subject to the word and uh, from the pulpit the decrees of God are proclaimed, the judgments of God. And judgments uh, include judgments of forgiveness, of mercy, right? Not just of condemnation. Um, and so when we proclaim the gospel, this is a judgment of God. God's judgment fell upon Christ so that his mercy could fall on us. That's a judgment as well. So what we are, what we are in is a heavenly court. 
not a courtroom in the sense that we think of today with some lawyers making arguments before a judge on a bench, but a heavenly court, which would be more along the lines of what you'd see in, say, you know, a medieval castle or um, an ancient villa or something like that. Anyway, I've rambled on and on and on and on, and I imagine you've got some questions before we make a transition. Any, any, any questions? Yeah. Did you address the uh, development of cathedrals in Europe? Yeah, those, that's a good thing to think about, but I've not done enough work on it myself to say, any, say anything that would be worth hearing. <laughs> They're big. <laughs> They're ma- majestic. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so, David, then Martin. Uh, would it be interesting to hear a talk later at some point about the use of art in different areas, such as painting and sculpture, and how or even if it can be used. Uh, as an example, the podium is obviously sculpted out of wood, but, and there's obviously signs of omega and alpha, and then you see in the, the uh, tabernacle, fruits, things of that nature. Yeah. And then it would be interesting to see about images of people or things and how that might be inappropriate, or if it is appropriate, same thing with paintings, in actually the sanctuary itself. Yeah, well, uh, if we are thinking in terms of uh, illustrations of Scripture, uh, that's one thing. Uh, If we're thinking that we want the sanctuary to communicate heavenly realities, um, you know, that's that's something else to get into. Uh, There's always, uh, I think, the danger of misunderstanding what's being, you know, sort of said when you use visual arts of different forms. Um, and I think this is one reason why the Reformed have tended to shy away from that, um, because we've wanted to make certain that no one uh, fell into a kind of idolatrous way of behaving uh, without realizing they were doing it. So, um, but that's certainly a subject to, to think about. Yeah. I just when you started off, thinking along the lines of Aristotle actually comes up with the word metaphysics beyond just the physical. Right. And that all ancient cultures recognized there was something beyond that, right? And had just just a reminder to us of the day that we live in, how naked and how barren our academic institutions are yeah. in rejecting what we have give, been given in Christianity yeah. that they deny and don't even want to even acknowledge really the word metaphysics yeah. and drive it out of academia to, to a great extent. It just lives at the edges. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and the uh, latest podcast we talked about uh, that passage in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus talks about the casting out of demons and where they go and uh, when they come back. I think we're, we're actually seeing that in Western culture now. I, I, don't, I, I, actually, I actually think we're kind of in a transitional phase. We're moving away from kind of, a, of an atheistic materialism into a kind of a, a new, um, or maybe a better way to put it, is a, a revival of the pagan uh, and the very dark side of that pagan past. Yeah. Evan. So. I guess an observation and a question that falls from it. So it, it seems to me that we couldn't necessarily build something that, that you're suggesting. In other words, we should, if, if it is to be beautiful and lasting and, and eternal, essentially that seems to be a command to retake older places like the cathedrals at Sweden. Yeah, yeah. That, to retake the mainline churches. Yeah. Um, but that leads me to my question, which is, What's causing this flattening of, of metaphysics? Is it a, um, a an uncomfort or discomfort, if you will, with uh, predestination, or is it this idea that God is so powerful that He can uh, work through chaos? I, I mean, in, when I'm, in the second one, I'm thinking of um, uh, degrees of freedom theory that you often see discussed in like particle physics, or more realistically, here on Earth in in uh, petroleum engineering. Yeah, I, I can't really say. I, I don't know enough about that particular branch of the, of the of physics to say anything useful. Um, I guess when it comes to my own take on what's going on, I think there's two sides to it. I think there's 
on the one hand, a, a deep uh, uh, sense that we all have that if these older uh, ways of looking at the world um, prevailed in our society, there would be a whole lot of stuff that would be changed, and a lot of folks are not too keen about that. But I think uh, also a quest for power. I think Baconian science in particular, knowledge is power. Uh, basically, what that kind, what the knowledge that's being referred to is knowledge of the physical processes of the world that we can command. Um, what this other way of thinking about, or way of understanding, implies limits. There are certain things you're not permitted to do because there is another authority to whom you're accountable. So, you know, if we think about the transgender thing or the transhumanist thing, it's all um, one of the reasons why there's such a almost bizarre rage that these people possess is because they're trying to suppress the uh, conviction that they that they do have that. Uh, there are purposes to things that are not subject to their will. And I think um, that's at the root of the modern re- uh, rebellion. We want full control of the physical world. But, but even within the church itself, I mean, why oh, within the they- church? Well, yeah, that's a whole other subject. In fact, I'm thinking about writing a piece on the seduction of, of Christian intellectuals uh, because I, I do think... It seems like every generation we, we see uh, this kind of um, capitulation. Um, there's a kind of seduction. And it, it, it begins with, well, I, I just I want to have a place at the table. And then you discover, okay, to have that place at the table, what are the compromises you need to make to even get there? And then a series of strategic betrayals. I, I've seen it with some people who, just over the course of my life, strategic betrayals. They knew exactly what they were doing when they made those steps. That's why they won't pick up the phone when you call them anymore. <laughs> anyway, we, it's, it's getting late, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are, are very uh, deep matters, uh, things that uh, we can reflect on for years and years. Help us, Lord, though, to realize the world is a, a far bigger place than we realize. There's that marvelous line from Hamlet. Uh, there's, there are more things in heaven and on earth, Horatio, that are contained in your philosophy or trumped in your philosophy. Um, we live in such a time where we're rediscovering those realities in some, in some ways uh, in, in a good uh, uh, way, but in other times uh, in a bad way. Help us, Lord, uh, as the wheat and the tares seem to be growing together in our time to, to enjoy your grace and to keep uh, far away from those things that will come under your judgment. In Christ's name, amen.